Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. The episode you're about to hear was recorded in early June 2020, a time marked by a constellation of crises. First, the global pandemic of COVID-19, which, among other things, has killed hundreds of thousands of people, disrupted the daily lives of billions, and exposed cruel inequities in societies around the world. Second, yet another wave of horrific violence against Black communities and Black bodies, including George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, Tony McDade, and too many more to name in the United States has unleashed a torrent of protests demanding a modicum of justice in the face of pervasive and systemic racism. Finally, and relevant to the conversation that will follow, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu won re-election and has pledged to annex the West Bank, formalizing a decades-long process of brutal military occupation. His announcement came as a surprise only to those who have routinely ignored Palestinians, who have loudly and repeatedly sounded the alarm to anyone who would listen. In the United States and many other countries around the world, June is also Pride Month. Born out of a riot led largely by trans women of color at New York City's Stonewall Inn in 1969, Pride is both a celebration of one's identity and a protest against forces that would seek to extinguish the LGBTQ community, punishing difference as dangerous deviance. Without spoiling too much, our guest today ends his book by imagining a liberating queer politics, one that can speak out against discrimination and oppression against LGBTQ people, while also leveling powerful critiques against racism, sexism, state violence, imperialism, and military occupation. As Professor Achan's book and our conversation about it shows, this work is tremendously difficult and fraught, but it is also urgent. Normally, Pride Month is replete with parades and festivities, both freeing and in some ways problematic. With COVID-19, however, public concerns necessitate that Pride will look different this year. 
but it is my hope that these tremendously difficult times will spur us both to action and deeper contemplation. LGBTQ people and our allies, Palestinians and their allies, Black Americans and their allies. How can we work toward a politics that disrupts the status quo and puts us all on a path toward greater emancipation? How can we stand in solidarity with people who are different than us, holding their concerns as dearly as we each hold our own concerns? I certainly don't have all the answers, and Professor Atshan will acknowledge that his book doesn't either. But I hope that as you listen to our conversation and read Saad's book, it will spark more conversations about how we can move forward together. Black lives matter. Queer lives matter. Palestinian lives matter. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joshua Donovan, and today I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Saed Achan to the show. Dr. Achan is an assistant professor of peace and conflict studies at Swarthmore College. Previously, he was a postdoctoral fellow at Brown University's Watson Institute for International Studies. An anthropologist by training, Professor Achan is the author and co-author of a number of works dealing with Palestinian society and politics, global LGBTQ movements, and Quaker studies. His recent publications include a co-authored volume entitled The Moral Triangle, Germans, Israelis, and Palestinians, uh, published this year from Duke. And he has a forthcoming book, uh, Paradoxes of Humanitarianism, The Social Life of Aid in the Palestinian Territories. Uh, But today we're going to talk about his new book, uh, Queer Palestine and the Empire of Critique, out this year with Stanford University Press. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Achan. Thank you so much for having me. So the way that we like to start these is, is to just give you an opportunity to briefly introduce yourself. And uh, could you tell our listeners how you came to write this book? Yes, absolutely. So I uh, basically am a, an educator, a scholar. I'm a professor at Swarthmore College outside of Philadelphia in the Peace and Conflict Studies program. And I'm also Palestinian. I grew up in Palestine. I myself am gay, uh, also an LGBTQ uh, human rights activist. And so the the issues that I explore in this book on the LGBTQ Palestinian movement are near and dear to my heart and very much intimately connected to my own personal experiences and activism and scholarship. Thank you. Um, so you explain in the book that this is at least in part an autoethnography. Um, so what do you mean by this and, and why did you settle on this approach? Well, you know, it's, it's, I think that all scholarship to some extent is autobiographical. I think that if you really press scholars in terms of their research interests, I'd argue even in the most quote-unquote objectively rational fields, even in the STEM fields, there's always a trace of someone's history and positionality that informs their passion and their drive and their commitment to a particular intellectual endeavor. And so I think that all of us are engaging in in autoethnographic work to some extent. But in my case, I explicitly sort of center the text and the methodology within an anthropological history of autoethnographic work, which is quite common in my field of study. And I did this knowing very well that there is 
in the academy a critique of what's called me-search. So this idea of studying oneself, one's positionality reflexively, even though anthropologists have embraced this to a large extent, there are other fields that are skeptical, there are scholars that can be skeptical of this kind of work, especially when you have subaltern populations, women, people of color, LGBTQ populations, religious minorities, etc., engaging in research agendas to help give voice to the voiceless, to help uh, explicate dynamics, whether social or political, at the margin of the margin, at the periphery of the periphery. But then they risk being accused of engaging in what's called me-search, this, this, this idea that one is just simply engaging in a kind of narcissistic exercise and this kind of grievance politics. And I think that in some cases, people can go a little bit too far in that extreme. But I think what that notion of research does is it erases the fact that actually hegemonic scholarship historically and in the contemporary context has very much been research. And when white scholars study white norms and white institutions and white intellectual thought and European and American hegemonic frames of references, this is the default. It becomes the norm. Again, it's hegemonic. So it, it's invisible as a kind of me-search. So they are doing objective, rational research. But the rest of us are merely engaging in me-search, or so this, this criticism says. So I, I knew going into this project that I was doing something quite sensitive and that is mired in these considerations. But I felt it was very important to proceed nonetheless in a rigorous and analytically sound manner. I, I appreciate both uh, hearing now and, and having read in, in the book as well your uh, how upfront you were uh, about this and, and about striking a balance between, on the one hand, writing about a, a community and, and particularly activist community that you are personally involved in, while also uh, bringing in the scholarly rigor that one would expect uh, to see in a book from Stanford University Press. Um, and so talking about this in the United States, um, of course, uh, here we are in June, which kicks off the American Pride Month, right, or Pride in the United States. Um, and there are some similarities, but also, of course, a lot of, of differences between uh, LGBTQ movements in the United States and in Palestine. Some of our listeners may be familiar uh, with the LGBTQ movement in the United States, but maybe less so in Palestine. So could you briefly just kind of sketch out uh, what the movement uh, is like in Palestine? Who are some of the major organizations and, and players, just to give us a frame of reference? Absolutely. Yeah. So the LGBTQ social movement in Palestine is about 15 years old now. It's a relatively young organiz- movement, and it uh, has been largely led and spearheaded by uh queer Palestinian women, feminists, uh, they have played a disproportionate role in leading and catalyzing and sustaining the movement. Although, obviously, people who identify as men also see themselves as part of the movement as well. And there are two major LGBTQ Palestinian organizations. Uh, one is called al Qaus, which is short for rainbow in uh, Arabic, and the other is called Aswat, which means voices in Arabic. But one of the main points I make in the book is that 
the Palestinian queer social movement cannot be understood simply by looking at institutionalized, formalized, professionalized NGOs alone, but that many, many people, in fact, most people who are contributing to the movement are doing so in an underground capacity, an individual or private capacity as, as residents of historic Palestine and as people who are shaping their familial dynamics, neighborhood dynamics, social, societal, communal dynamics in their own ways and are not always necessarily attached to a particular ideological agenda that is put forward by the two major uh, NGOs. So it's, it's a heterogeneous movement and queer Palestinians come in all shapes and sizes, many different parts of the political spectrum. And what, one of the things I try to do really in the book is to honor that heterogeneity and to push back at notions that there's an archetypical or authority, you know, authentic uh, queer Palestinian political subjectivity, but that actually there are a myriad of queer Palestinian voices and subjectivities that are that all deserve to be heard and to be honored. Um, thank you for that. It's, uh, I think, an excellent point and, and one, again, that appears throughout the, the book. Um, one of the, the things that you discuss is not only the ontological diversity among LGBTQ people in Palestine, different queer subjectivities, uh, but also an epistemological diversity, right, with different sets of metaphors and ways to understand and articulate experiences and, and aspirations, right? So one famous metaphor, for example, in the United States is this notion of coming out of the closet, right? And sort of publicly professing one's um, sexual, uh, sexuality um, or, or sort of status as an LGBTQ person. Um, what are some of the different epistemologies or, or metaphors that one sees in the LGBTQ uh, community in Palestine? Yeah, so, so you know, sometimes there's this notion that, uh, you know, Western queer epistemologies are not relevant to queer epistemologies in contexts like the Middle East or Palestine in particular. And one of the arguments I'm trying to make is that actually, again, there's heterogeneity in queer Palestinian epistemologies as well, ways of making meaning, seeing oneself in the world, articulating one's struggle, one's vision for the future, um, finding language in order to have that sense of self. And there are notions or metaphors or discourses or epistemologies that emerged in Western contexts that actually resonate very deeply for many queer Palestinians in Palestine today. So, for example, the notion of the closet, right? In Arabic, we'll say khazane, and more and more queer Palestinians are integrating this uh, metaphor of the khazane, literally in Arabic, into their everyday language. Uh, but then there are also many queer Palestinians for whom that notion doesn't resonate at all in, in any way. And so people, for example, will talk about uh, rather than coming out, inviting in. Or they'll talk about, you know, rather than coming out, actually it's a dance. You're constantly dancing throughout mm -hmm. your life. You're maneuvering your way strategically, carefully through this kind of repertoire. You're building trust and you're coming out strategically to certain people. Uh, but then you may be, um, you know, protecting your this this the knowledge of your sexuality from other people in contexts where that could be uh, very very dangerous. But also this notion that the closet as a temporal space, but also as a as a physical space, there most queer Palestinians don't believe that 
you just you were in the closet physically and now you're out of the closet geographically you're in this totally mm. new spatial domain or temporally that you know that was the past you were in the closet and now in the future you're no longer in the closet actually both spatially and temporally one is constantly going in and out of the closet in strategic ways on a micro level, even multiple times per day. So I found there to be quite rich and compelling and beautiful epistemological frameworks that queer Palestinians are engaged in that I try to highlight in the text. So one of the other things uh, that you highlight in in the text, and and in fact, I I think in a, a certain way it, it motivates a lot of of the book is is a series of obstacles right that the lgbtq community uh both activists and not activists uh face in in the context of palestine and um you know for those interested in these issues the the book tackles a lot of uh, of course deeply controversial issues and so we'll we'll get into one of them uh just to start and and that is how you discuss homophobia within Palestinian society uh, without contributing to dehumanizing discourses, right? For example, I mean, as a gay man in the United States, I feel pretty comfortable speaking out against homophobia that I face in, in the United States because it, it doesn't contribute uh, very often to broader dehumanizing discourses. There can be some other problems, but um, it doesn't excuse occupation, for example, right? So how, how are homophobia and, and occupation linked um, in, in your mind? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So, and it, it's a very, it's a fraught question. And, and it, it's, it's, it's a challenging one. And I, and I, you know, do try to be as thoughtful and nuanced as possible in explicating my arguments. So uh, I, I draw upon Audre Lorde's notion that there's no hierarchy of oppressions. And one cannot prioritize the struggle against uh, Israeli military occupation or imperialism, settler colonialism, etc., over the struggle against uh, homophobia within Palestinian society. That actually, there are different forms of oppression that are external to our society, but there are also internal systems of oppression within our society. And the struggles are inextricably linked, and we can't disaggregate them. The queer Palestinian subject is simultaneously having to navigate toxic masculinity, homophobia within their society, as well as Israeli occupation, settler colonialism. And those two forces are seemingly disparate, but they actually reinforce one another in very powerful ways. But I think that we have to have an honest discussion about in the academic community and outside of the academic community about homophobia in Middle Eastern contexts. And I found that there's a dearth of queer scholarship in Middle Eastern studies that actually truly addresses homophobia in a real and honest and ethnographically sound way. There's no way we can escape the fact that survey data after survey data shows that 94 to 95% of Palestinian respondents have disfavorable views when it comes to homosexuality, right? That this is one of the highest rates of homophobia in the world. We have to grapple with this empirical reality and the way that it touches the lives of so many queer and trans and gender non-conforming people within Palestinian society. But we have to do so in a way that historicizes and contextualizes that homophobia 
while at the same time, as you said, does not dehumanize or pathologize on a collective level Palestinian society writ large and doesn't feed into colonial narratives that try to justify the oppression and subjugation of Palestinians. And I believe that we are able to do that and to strike that balance in ways that are quite productive and constructive if done ethically and sensitively and very, very carefully. So one of the discourses that um, one runs the risk of, of bolstering, right, um, in discussing homophobia in, in Palestinian society is known sort of colloquially as pinkwashing, right? And to just briefly and, and poorly explain it uh, for our listeners, pinkwashing uh, is, uh, you know, a, a discourse that that highlights or, or argues for, um, uh, you know, progressive Israeli values when it comes to LGBTQ people um, and manifests itself, right, in sometimes very physical, very, um, uh, very specific displays or overt displays like the, the pride parade in Tel Aviv, for example. Um, and opposition to that has has grown up in the Palestinian uh, LGBTQ movement, and that's often known as pink watching, um, right, or criticizing uh, the sort of tokenization of LGBTQ people and, and essentially erasing or, or ignoring or distracting from uh, the brutalities of, of occupation. Uh, but you argue after sort of laying these uh, debates out in a much more eloquent, uh, eloquent, eloquent way than I did, um, that these debates have become sort of paralyzing and, and hegemonic. Um, could you explain that for us? Absolutely. Yes. So uh, I am not an apologist for pinkwashing by any stretch of the imagination. And anyone who reads the book will see that I actually go in depth into defining pinkwashing, providing examples of pinkwashing, and really demonstrating unequivocally that the Israeli state has uh, very cynically appropriated queer bodies and discourses and uh, drawn attention to a purported advanced uh, LGBTQ rights record in Israel, precisely in order to detract attention away from gross violations of Palestinian human rights. Uh, and, and that is extremely important to establish and it is very important to recognize that so much of the transnational nature of the queer Palestinian movement and the bonds and ties and networks of solidarity that queer Palestinian activists have forged with uh, other queer social movements around the world has been a response to pinkwashing in the form of pinkwatching. So all of that is, you know, I have to make sure is very, very clear. That being said, I do also draw attention to some queer Palestinian voices who are concerned that sometimes there's a tendency to see pinkwashing in everything. Sometimes it can be simplistic to reduce everything to pinkwashing. Uh, we've gotten to a point, for example, where any film that has any kind of queer representation of Israelis or Palestinians will be met with a knee-jerk response that it is engaging in pinkwashing. And also we get into this very problematic uh, notion that any kind of public recognition of homophobia within Palestinian society is necessarily a form of pinkwashing because it's contributing to a civilizational discourse that is uh, oppressing Palestinians even further, which, as we talked about earlier, 
in many, many cases is not the case. Uh, but also another example is that we can't recognize any advancements or achievements in terms of LGBTQ rights within Israeli society without then being accused of furthering a pinkwashing agenda. And it's, it's gotten so bad that some of the radical theorists, that's a term I use to describe uh, some folks in the movement who uh, move so far to the left that they're actually sometimes even mirroring the right and are practicing forms of ideological policing and excommunication that are very counterproductive and are inhibiting the growth of the movement. But now there's this new discourse emerging of quote-unquote internalized pinkwashing. So this idea that if a queer Palestinian wants to actually talk about homophobia that they've experienced, or if, for example, a queer Palestinian citizen of Israel wants to talk about the sort of nexus between queer Palestinian and queer Israeli civil society, then all of a sudden they risk being accused of having internalized a pinkwashing discourse and contributing to their own dehumanization. And that's very, very disheartening to see queer Palestinians come under this kind of what I call also discursive disenfranchisement, where they're very right to have tools, to language, to self-definition, to articulating their struggle is under assault. And it's not only under assault from the right, but it's also under assault from many parts of the political spectrum. And so one of my main arguments is that the critique of imperialism has become an empire of critique, um, and hence the title of the book. And that the queer Palestinian subject is now mired or trapped in these different forms of policing and surveillance at the discursive and material and embodied level from so many different forces, near and far, that that can be quite debilitating. And in the end of the book, I try to articulate a vision for how we can overcome this impasse and truly move forward uh, and transcend it. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off um so one of the one of the forms of of opposing pinkwashing but it's also a site of um of this sort of paralyzing uh critique that you're talking about or paralyzing series of critiques um is uh is boycotts right and specifically boycotts and, and awareness raising campaigns over uh pinkwashing in global queer spaces, right? So not just Tel Aviv, but um, there were incidents you talked about in New York City, in Chicago, in Seattle. Um, 
but uh, tensions um, emerge, you argue, when certain voices, be it Palestinian or Israeli, are excluded from queer spaces. Um, you draw on Andrew Robinson's notion of a, a monoglossia, right? And you argue that that can hurt both the fight against homophobia and occupation. So how have some of these fights uh, played out in the past and, and how can we try to move toward a, a diaglossia or heteroglossia um, in which multiple uh, discourses can sort of coexist within the queer movement? Absolutely. I think that, you know, I'm interested as a queer Palestinian and also as a member of the social movement and as someone who cares deeply about it and its future trajectory, I'm interested in, in seeing it continue to grow. And I'm interested in seeing it succeed on multiple fronts. And, and I, I, I believe very strongly that in order to do so, we have to have as broad and inclusive of an ideological umbrella as possible. And we have to embrace many different queer Palestinian voices and strategies. And we have to refrain from some of the ideological policing and some of the dynamics that you've just uh, synthesized as well, where we end up in a situation in which the only people who are sort of left as spokespeople and the only people who are left shaping strategy are people who have a very, very narrow and rigid and very particular ideological agenda, which has its advantages in many, many ways, but doesn't represent the full range of points of view. And I think that by democratizing the movement and by truly, truly accepting different articulations of struggle and different approaches to the struggle, that would allow the movement, I think, to be even more successful in the long run and also to be able to nurture more, you know, stronger partnerships with external actors who are in solidarity with queer Palestinians. But now, unfortunately, the movement is really, really stuck because it's gotten to a point that it's effectively driven out um, anyone who does not subscribe to this radical purist politics. And that's been so disorienting for so many queer Palestinians, especially in historic Palestine, who didn't expect to experience abandonment or public chastising or public criticism from fellow activists and fellow people within the movement. And it's, it's disheartening when activists turn against each other and when people within a movement turn against each other, especially publicly. But I think this is not unique to the queer Palestinian movement. And one of the arguments I make is that actually we see this dynamic in so many progressive and leftist movements all around the world, where sometimes we are so invested in policing one another um, that we really lose sight of the larger struggle and, and what lies ahead. Uh, and I think that more and more uh, scholars of social movements, as well as activists, are actually talking about some of these toxic dynamics in these social movement spaces and the fact that we really need to transform these social movement spaces into spaces of healing uh, for people who are wounded and people who are vulnerable and that we need to not perpetuate harm against one another, especially given all the other harm that we face. I, you know, when I was reading this and, and just hearing you uh, say it, the, the expression, the left eats its own uh, sort of comes to my mind. Um, Something, of course, that applies to a lot of uh, leftist movements in the United States. But I think, uh, as you show here, it 
it's also applicable to the LGBTQ community. Um, one of the things I, I want to then turn to, uh, because you do in, in your book, is the the field of cultural production. Um, you examine, uh, on the one hand, uh, journalistic representations and then also film representations of LGBTQ Palestinians, uh, both by uh, people from the region and not. Um, how has the empire of critique stifled Palestinian voices in these areas? Yeah, I mean, I give the example of uh, a queer Palestinian film called Oriented, which was produced by a British filmmaker, but uh, highlights the, the voices of three uh, gay Palestinian citizens of Israel who live in Tel Aviv in the context of the 2004 Israeli uh, military assault on Gaza. And it, there's very, very little editorializing. So we, in, in the, over the course of the documentary, we really see the lives and experiences of these three friends, and we see the kinds of struggles that they face. Uh, at some point, uh, they even refer to where they are positioned as Palestine. You know, they're in Tel Aviv, in what is now considered Israel. But for many Palestinians, I mean, all of this is part of historic Palestine. So they, they, they have a palpably strong sense of their Palestinian identity of involvement in a kind of national struggle. But they also recognize uh, the, their struggle as queer people. Within Palestinian society, you see one of them really struggling with his family to accept him, etc. So it's a very nuanced documentary. And it's, it's one example that I give among a number of examples. But then all of a sudden, we see that the largest LGBTQ Palestinian organization issues a press release really lambasting the film and lambasting these these three individuals who agreed to be featured in it, accusing them of being complicit in pinkwashing. Um, and then I give the example of inviting Khadr Abu Saif, who was one of the three protagonists, to, to speak at my home institution in a public forum after screening of the film. And then this re- very, very zealous uh, non-Palestinian who is part of the global queer Palestinian solidarity movement, who marshaled that press release from Al-Qaus and insisted that the film had to be boycotted because it's problematic, it's pinkwashing, we have to shut down the whole event. And I just asked him if he had considered the fact that he was lobbying a queer Palestinian who invited a queer Palestinian who has a film about him and his friends to cancel a film screening because the representation of the community or these particular individuals was not aligned with the ideological prism that this person in solidarity outside of Palestine had in their own mind about what is authentic and what is not, what is a proper queer Palestinian subject and, and what is not. And so I give this example um, as to, to show how <laughs> you know, frustrating it is that we've gotten to this moment where people in Palestine, outside of Palestine, really have authorized themselves as the arbiters of authenticity and the arbiters of wokeness and the arbiters of what's acceptable discourse, what's acceptable cultural representation. And I make a, quite an impassioned plea for, for us to stop. <laughs> and, and, and I say that, you know what, if there's a film that you don't like, you know, um, don't try to cancel it and cancel cancel engaging in this cancel culture of everyone who's involved in it, go produce your own or go support 
the production of another one. What the public sphere needs is not the shrinking of public discourse, but the expansion of public discourse. No film, no press release, no individual voice, no book, even my book, can provide a comprehensive uh, you know, mosaic that needs to be um, explicated. It's only through a multiplicity of data points that we can finally get at that, that, that full picture. If we can even ever get at a truly full picture of a movement or a community or a population like this. Uh, so so I'm, I'm, I really, really hope that the book will be read and that it will sort of um, spark some introspection within the movement and outside of the movement so that we can overcome some of these dynamics. So um, one of the, the other areas that, that you argue um, is causing a number of problems uh, and no offense to our listeners who are part uh, as we are of, of academia, but, but it is of, of the academy and, and most especially the, the Western Academy. You take on um, two really influential ideas in queer studies or at least, uh, you know, global uh, queer studies. Um, and so I, I want to just you know, have, have you sketch out your, your critiques of them. But the first is uh, Joseph Massad's notion of the, the gay international. Um, the second is uh, Jasper Poir's notion of homonationalism, uh, specifically as it was articulated in a couple of author, uh, articles co-authored by uh, Maya McDashi. Um, so could you outline some of, some of the issues with these academic critiques? Yeah, so, so I think that Western-based scholars who turn their academic gaze onto vulnerable populations, especially in the global south, or onto social movements that are you know, facing tremendous odds, for example, like the queer movement in Palestine, there is an ethical responsibility to how it is that we engage in our knowledge production, in our academic critiques. And I, I do think that we have positive examples of that form of engagement, and I, I do reference, for example, in the book, the, the uh, legacies that you know scholar activists uh, such as uh, Judith Butler or uh, Angela Davis or, uh, for example, Sarah Schulman at CUNY, who they've been invaluable, I think, to the global queer Palestinian movement, and as I say, have really poured their hearts and souls and provide us with such a, a laudatory example. Uh, but I do think that. Western-based academic scholarship uh, or public discourse and its critique and sometimes its fetishization of critique does have the potential to be debilitating for the social movements that it, um, that it turns to. And so, you know, this idea of the gay international, but also this idea of homonationalism as it's been applied to the movement, have been profoundly devastating to this movement. And I... I hope that I've done a good job in my chapter on academia uh, in really demonstrating with evidence precisely how debilitating those frameworks have been um, in terms of their reception and in terms of their effects, actual effects on these movements. In most academic knowledge production, scholarship, public discourse has very little bearing, <laughs> often in many cases, on, on what it's examining. But then you do have these cases, especially when folks are as influential as you mentioned, that that really can be uh, 
it, it's disheartening to see what what that does. And so this idea that uh, with the gay international, this idea that a movement that sees itself primarily as an anti-imperialist movement, and I would argue actually has prioritized the struggle against imperialism over the struggle against homophobia, which is yeah, raises a whole other set of issues. For that movement to be accused of being um, uh, mired in imperialist dynamics and complicit in Western sexual imperialism and these imperialist agendas, what it does is it just further stigmatizes these activists. It 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 it, it further renders their lives more precarious. Um, it makes them even more vulnerable to all kinds of attacks. And in the end, analytically, I think it it falls apart when you um, are attuned to issues of reinforcing Orientalism or reifying oppressive uh, power structures and and such as, for example, anti women and and misogynist currents. So, so I explicate this quite carefully and deliberately and also draw upon other scholars who have raised these concerns. And I really try to ground my, my analysis in their, um, in their writings. And the notion of homonationalism, I mean, I think that it, it, it's brilliant and I think that it is very much applicable to the Israeli state. It's very much applicable to the U.S. state. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... But when all of a sudden it was applied to the global queer Palestinian solidarity movement, um, I think that it went too far. And at that point, it revealed to me very clearly how that kind of discursive turn was less about actual solidarity or any kind of productive, constructive engagement with the movement, because not a single form of evidence was marshaled at all. But what it does is it actually ends up ultimately being about expanding the theoretical frontiers of a framework of a Western-based academic. That becomes the means and the ends and the ultimate objective. And as a result, a kind of epistemic violence ensues. And so I hope that my chapter on academia is an invitation to Western-based academics to really rethink how it is that we engage with these kinds of social movements and to try to truly reposition our work and our analysis in a way that embodies solidarity. So, yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think up front, you, you did an excellent job uh, speaking back to, to two influential um, uh, ideas. And, and one of the, the passages that really struck me, um, I want to just read briefly for um, our listeners, you were quoting um, one of your interlocutors, um, who identifies as as a lesbian and as a Palestinian uh, living in the West Bank. Um, and you quote her as saying, uh, Zionists tell me that Palestinian is a social construct and Masadists, or those who you know, sort of follow Joseph Masad's idea of the gay international, uh, tell me that LGBTQ is a social construction or whatever you call it. Honestly, I don't care where these terms come from. All I know is that these words feel right. They are me, and this doesn't make me any less of a Palestinian. Um, and so I, I was moved by that. Um, and, you know, at the same time, uh, to not really to, to defend either of the ideas, but, but you note in your book that, you know, the critique that Massad makes um, about sort of 
hegemonizing discourses, right? This idea that there is sort of only one way to be gay and it's a sort of Western way, um, you know, is something to sort of keep in mind when one is thinking about uh, different LGBTQ subjectivities. And and with homonationalism, right, this idea um, that nations see themselves as civilized and they sort of measure them their civilization based on how they treat uh, LGBTQ communities, that that there there's something to to critique right in both of these western rights discourses often very cynically deployed um so so how do you balance on the one hand you know critiquing things that that deserve criticism without you know creating this sort of stifling empire of critique that erases the the people like your your interviewee yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's a so tough as question. A, a, <laughs> no, but you know, so as a Palestinian, um, you know, I personally believe that in the future, we need to have one state, we need to have a binational, secular, democratic state, yeah. in which Israelis and Palestinians live together with equality and with dignity. In the US context, when I make, when I articulate that, it's tremendously controversial, it's considered super radical in so many spaces and i and then all of a sudden i met with this hysteria of people who say you're genocidal you want to drive all the israelis into the sea you want to just quote unquote destroy the jewish state except i mean and i'm where are you getting this from i'm i'm articulating a vision for secularism and i'm articulating a vision for democracy and this should actually resonate according to at least purported american political values etc but but it becomes so controversial, even though the argument I'm making is actually quite simple, quite reasonable, and is not inflammatory in any way, and is inclusive, etc. Similarly, I believe that LGBTQ people deserve equal rights. I deserve that. Uh, I believe that queer people in Palestine, in the U.S., all around the world, have the right to lead lives with dignity. We have the right not to experience structural homophobia, not to experience silencing of our voices not to experience physical violence, not to experience familial homophobia being disowned by our families, being rejected by our nations and our national projects, etc., etc., etc. And I believe that the struggle against homophobia is equally important to all other struggles against systems of oppression. Now, when I say this in a, in a Middle Eastern con- or a Middle Eastern studies context, Similarly, the parallel here is that that is considered controversial. That argument that I'm making is considered is 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 considered very sensitive, is considered inflammatory, and then all of a sudden, all of these accusations of complicity and imperialism—I mean, these are harsh critiques—all of a sudden get thrown my way. How on earth did we get to that point? How did we get to that point where? The basic, basic argument that queer people in the Middle East deserve not to be met with different forms of violence and deserve to lead lives of dignity. How is it that we've come to a point that merely articulating that argument has to be so contentious? And what my view is that we have enough is enough. You know, the recycling the same arguments that, well... You're talking about queerness and LGBTQ, and these are Western categories, and we have to look at their etymologies, and we have to examine 
in Palestine. I mean, these arguments have been made over and over and over and over and over. And they've been made over, over the past 20 years. I've had to keep, and we have to keep going back to them. But I'm, through my book, I'm inviting us to actually open a new chapter. Okay, we've made those arguments. We understand those concerns. But can we now go back to talking about homophobia? Can we now go back to talking about queer bodies on the ground? Because I think that what these intellectual discussions are doing is that they're actually, they keep taking us away from going back to the empirical realities on the ground and actually listening and hearing the cries and the struggles of queer people who are actually suffering and who are in their local context doing what they can to ameliorate that suffering for themselves and for their counterparts. And rather than being met with our admiration, with our support, with our respect, Western-based academics are accusing those people of being quote-unquote local informants or native informants for the gay international agenda. So actually they're being re-victimized. They're being further blamed for their own oppression, even as they try to create better conditions for themselves so that they could lead lives that, that are true to themselves and that are free from these forms of violence. So I'm, to be honest, it's exhausting. I'm really, really exhausted. And I, I, I really, really hope that we can get to a point where young scholars, I'm a junior scholar myself, we can talk about queerness in the Middle East, queerness in the Arab world, and not have to constantly refer back to the same theoretical framework over and over that we've done and redone for 20 years. You know, so I really, really do hope that more people will have the courage to help us open a new chapter in scholarship on queerness in the MENA region. You know, one of the things, one of the other many things that you uh, wrote in the book that really resonated with me um, in the context of this discussion uh, was uh, just a very simple rhetorical question, but I, I think it, it really is quite profound and important to keep in mind. And, and you write, uh, to whom are academics accountable when they level such critiques? And, you know, I mean, you can, whether you're talking about critiques or, or really, frankly, any form of scholarship, I it's something that I, I certainly try to, to think of myself. And I think it's an important question uh, to continue raising, uh, regardless of one's positionality or, or research topic, right? To whom are, are you responsible or to whom are you accountable? Um, and, and with that in mind, um, I, I just want to end by uh, turning to, to your conclusion in, in which you suggest that there. Uh, is a potential for a queer Palestinian movement to radically reimagine possible futures uh, without any sort of ideological purism. Uh, what does this look like for you? What do you hope to see going forward? Thank you for that beautiful concluding question. And thank you for hitting the nail on the head, which is that my argument shouldn't be misconstrued as one against radical thinking and radical envisioning and radical movement building. I think that as a queer Palestinian, my existence is a radical act and mm. my vision and articulation for uh, equality and to be able to lead a life of dignity um, as a subject in, in Palestine, in the US, in the world is very, very much a radical act. Uh, but my concern is that 
we see radicalism moving in the direction of purity, right? And these radical purists, and that we cannot allow radicalism to only be legible as a purist endeavor. And so in the future, uh, my hope is that the LGBTQ Palestinian movement, particularly its leadership, will uh, you know, be willing to embrace, as I mentioned, heterogeneity, democratization, and really opening its ranks to especially young queer Palestinians um, who have many, many different voices and who see things in, differently than some of the older generations do. And also that we do a better job at connecting queer Palestinians who live in Israel proper with those who live in the Gaza Strip and those who live in Jerusalem, those who live in the West Bank, as well as those who live in the diaspora. All of these political and geographic divides are products of Israeli colonial processes. And when we further reify these divides, um, we are playing into that project. And so I think in the future, it would be you know, wonderful to see. And I do think we can get to this point where we can have a movement that's truly, truly inclusive. And it will be even much more powerful. Uh, this movement has has faced these challenges, but it's also had tremendous success, as I really point out in the book, and I give many examples for some almost miracles that this movement has been able to pull off. But it has so much more potential, and it has so much more work to do, and I believe that we can get there, um, but I believe that we need more voices uh, basically calling for this pluralism of thought and of practice. And I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can move in that direction. Thank you so much. Um, I, I appreciate your, your conversation here with us. And um, usually we like to end the show by asking authors, uh, what are you working on next? So now uh, what, what sort of projects are on your horizon? Thank you. I've just started a new project with a, a colleague, uh, Philip Ayoub, who's uh, also a queer Palestinian academic in the U.S., uh, and he, we are working on uh, studying LGBTQ movements across the Middle East, North Africa region and thinking about the regional networks and transnational networks that connect them. So while this book that we've just talked about now specifically is on the LGBTQ Palestinian movement, I hope that my, uh, my next queer book will actually look at region-wide uh, movements across the MENA region. Excellent. Well, thank you so very much uh, for taking the time to to talk with me today and and to speak with our listeners. Um, and you know, in, in the midst of a, a global pandemic and uh, you know uh, unrest and tremendously difficult situations, certainly in the United States, but of course also in uh, in Palestine. Uh, I, I just wanted to express to all of our listeners that we hope that you. Uh, stay safe um, and wish you well in this uh, very difficult time. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.